Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 30 to 35, and chapter 8, 12 to 18, and 48 to 59. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? I am not possessed by a demon said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Noemi. <clears throat> oh, you'll notice that we, uh, failed to put in the slides for the scripture text for today, so if you want to follow along, I encourage you to do so. You can either pull it on your phone, but if you scan the QR code, there's actually a worship bulletin on there that has the text that was just read. 
Uh, there are going to be times we're going to be going back and forth, so I encourage you to do that. Uh, so we're in a series today, and we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John that we're calling A Public Faith. And the reason we're in this series is that we believe that one of the most important questions for every person to answer for themselves is the question, who is Jesus? Uh, and if you're here today and maybe you've wrestled with that question or you thought you had an answer to that question or maybe you inherited a question from a family or friends or whatever the case might be, but you've never wrestled with that question for yourself, who is Jesus? Uh, we believe it's one of the most important questions to answer in life, especially, I will say, during a time where Christianity and the church in America is being exposed for a lot of its own hypocrisy, for a lot of the ways that it's failed to live up to the Christian standards, where the Christian church itself has failed to be a witness to who this Jesus is, to get back to the question, who is Jesus, has perhaps never been more important for all of us. Uh, so I want to ask you to do this. Just, in, just where you're sitting right now, think about, if you're here and you're, you wouldn't profess a Christian faith, Think about how you might answer that question. Who is Jesus? You don't have to say it out loud, but just in your own mind, in your own heart, how would you answer that question? Or if you are here and you do profess a Christian faith, uh, how would a dear friend or a family member or a respected colleague, just someone else in your life who doesn't profess faith, how would they answer that question? Who do you think Jesus is? Think about that for just one moment. Uh, as a pastor, I've heard all kinds of answers to this question. And so many of you, if you're here, you might have said, I believe he's a great, one of the greatest ethical teachers that we've ever seen. Uh, others might say, well, he was a mystic and a poet uh, that changed the course of human history. Others would say he was a philosopher and maybe even a prophet to speak into uh, some of the abuses of his day. Others might say, no, he was the original revolutionary, like he transformed and undermined the entire Roman Empire. Uh, some of the more interesting answers that I've gotten from people when I've asked them who they think Jesus is, uh, some people have said he was like the original hippie. Like he was like he was the first hippie. Or others will say he was the original socialist. Or my personal favorite was somebody who was dead serious who said that Jesus was like the original Illuminati. Like he started the entire Illuminati that's taking over the world. Right? That was, and I was like, mm, and I, this conversation is probably going to wind down pretty quickly. Like I don't... Now that we need to go there. But what's interesting is this. <clears throat> Scholars, especially the New Testament, talk about how easy it is for all of us to fashion Jesus after our own image. So if you're kind of a revolutionary activist type, what do you see Jesus to be? The greatest and best revolutionary and activist. If you're a philosopher and you're a thinker type, you see, Jesus is the greatest philosopher. If you're someone who wants to live a moral life, you're trying to establish a moral compass in a chaotic world, you see Jesus is the greatest moral teacher you've ever met. Uh, if you're loving the Illuminati, you think Jesus was the original Illuminati. We have this tendency to make Jesus after our own image. And so there's this famous saying in New Testament studies that says, scholars have looked down the long well of history in search of Jesus. And instead, what they discovered was their own reflection at the bottom of the well. And I want to suggest to you, all of us do some version of this. We look down and we say we're looking for the historical Jesus, but really all we're doing is we're gazing at a reflection of ourselves. We want Jesus to be who we want him to be. 
And part of what we're doing with this series is we're allowing Jesus to speak for himself. Uh, We're allowing him to define and tell us who he is. What does Jesus have to say to this question, who is Jesus? And it turns out he actually has a lot to say. And so we want to look at that today in both John chapter 6 and John chapter 8. And when we ask the question, what does Jesus have to say about himself? Here in these two texts, he uses three images, and we're going to look at each of them. We're going to look at the bread, the light, and the name. And we're going to look at the claim that Jesus is making about himself in each of those images. Okay, so first, we'll look at the bread. So uh, look at John chapter 6, verse 30 through 35. Let me just read that to us again to refresh our memories. Uh, Here's what it says. It says, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you, what will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Here again, if we allow Jesus to speak for himself, he's making this incredible claim, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It is an astounding claim. But what makes this claim even more incredible is if you understand the background of what's happening in John chapter 6 just before Jesus says this. So here's what's just happened, a little bit of background context. Jesus has just miraculously fed the 5,000. John 6 chapter chapter 6 verse 4 tells us that Jesus knew that the Passover meal was at hand. And because the Passover meal was at hand, he asks his disciples, how are we going to feed this crowd of 5,000? And the disciples come to Jesus and say, well, we don't have enough money. We can't even come close to paying for food for all these people. And Jesus says, well, what do they have? And they say, well, there's, there's this boy. He's got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus miraculously multiplies the meal. And so he says, it's because the Passover is coming, we must feed these people. How will we feed them? And he gives them the five loaves and the two fish. Multiplies, and they end up gathering even more than what they began with. The crowd sees this miracle, sees that Jesus is able to feed their physical hunger. He also, they also know that Jesus is the one who heals sicknesses. Jesus is the one who's not afraid to challenge the powers that be during his time. Jesus has all these miraculous powers. And so all these people now come to Jesus to say, you must now be our king. And everyone in the crowd is doing what every one of us was doing. They're making Jesus after their own desires and images. We want you to be our king. Jesus, though, at that point says, I'm not the king that you're looking for. I'm not who you think me to be. I'm not who you want me to be. And so instead what Jesus does is he flees from the crowd and he crosses over the Sea of Galilee and he walks on water. Now here's the important point there. He walks across the sea as as if the sea were dry land. And he comes out on the other side of the sea and is now on the other side of the sea, a Passover meal, Walking across the sea as if it were in dry land on the other side of the sea. This is where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
God fed you in the wilderness with manna from heaven, but the true manna, the true bread of life, that is me. Did you catch all the details of what I just described there? Passover meal. Walking across it, walking through a sea as if it were on dry ground, on the other side of the sea, saying, God has sent me to provide you bread from heaven. Do you hear the claim that Jesus is making there? Do you know what other story is being echoed in all of Jesus' individual actions there? What Jesus is saying is, I am the new Exodus. There was a time when God fed you a Passover meal where a lamb was slain in your place and you were set free. There was a time when God split the sea and you walked through that sea as if it were on dry land. There was a time on the other side of that sea when God fed you and sustained you in the wilderness with bread from heaven. And what Jesus is doing at every single step of this story, He's reenacting the entire story of Israel's liberation and He's saying, I am your true exodus. I am the true liberation that you're looking for. I am the freedom that your heart is searching for. And it's a startling claim. I love what John Stott has to say about this in a book called Basic Christianity, which is a great introduction to the Christian faith, if you're curious. He says this about Jesus' teaching. He says, The self-centeredness of the teaching of Jesus immediately sets him apart from the other great religious teachers of the world. They were self-effacing. He was self-advancing. They pointed men away from themselves, saying, That is the truth. So as far as I can perceive that, follow that. Jesus said, I am the truth. Come and follow me. The founder of none of the other religions ever dared to say such a thing. The most remarkable feature of all this self-centered teaching is that it was uttered by the one who insisted on humility in others. He rebuked his disciples for their self-seeking and was wearied by their desire to be great. What is it about Jesus? In all of his humility, Jesus, who came to serve, that he continued to insist on talking about who he was. And one of the, part of the infuriating thing about Jesus is that somehow, even when other people weren't talking about him, he was able to make that conversation about himself. And so here he is, you know, talking about the bread of life, and no one's asking any these things. You want to know what the real bread of life? I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never hunger. You will never thirst again. And the claim that Jesus is making there, he's saying, I am the satisfaction of every one of your desires. I am your soul's freedom. I am your exodus is going to be found only in me. Every appetite, every longing, every desire, every yearning, every source of discontent. What Jesus is saying is if you look underneath the turbulent surface of all of your inner desires... If you look underneath the turbulent chaos of all of your inner desires, if you go underneath the surface of that, you're going to find a deep spiritual undertow of the soul. And that undertow of the soul, the undertow that creates the desire for wealth, the undertow that creates the desire for belonging, the undertow that creates the desire for approval, everything, all the other turbulent desires on the surface, if you are willing and brave enough to go underneath it all, you'll find a deep, undertow of the soul in the silent 
pull of the soul. And Jesus says, that desire is your appetite for me. That God made you for himself. And every other desire will leave you dissatisfied until you find your way back to life with God. Jesus says every hunger of your soul, every appetite, every craving, if you pursue it far enough and deep enough, you'll discover it is a desire for me. So we've been honoring the memory of Tim Keller, one of my favorite um, uh, illustrations that he uses. He talks about the power of fairy tales across all generations, across all different kinds of cultures. And he says that part of the reason why he believes that fairy tales are so powerful is that, it, is that fairy tales in a unique way actually tap into the deep undertow of the human soul. It's kind of tapping into a collective memory that we have, collective desire for something that we've lost that we can no longer name. And so fairy tales, what do they tell us? Fairy tales tells us that there is a love that will never end. Right? Fairy tales tell us that there is a kiss that will bring us back to life. Fairy tales tell us that there is a prince who will come to slay the dragon. Fairy tales tell us that there is a hero's quest that will give us immortality. It tells us that there is a beauty that will transform the beast. It tells us that there is a world of perfect harmony. And we spend all of our lives searching for something that will open the door to this fairy tale desire. We spend all of our lives searching for the one who will love us in a way that shows us that love will never end. We spend our entire lives looking for a romance that will heal us of our aching loneliness. We spend our entire lives searching for an achievement that we think will make us immortal for a success that will make our souls finally happy. We spend our entire lives searching for a cause that will heal a broken world and we search our entire lives decade after decade after decade. And I believe the loneliest moment in life is when you finally achieve the thing that you thought would satisfy you and it becomes like dust in your mouth. You thought fame would make you feel whole. And you get famous and you feel more broken than ever. You thought wealth would make you feel important. And you got rich and it made you feel insecure. You thought love would make you feel desirable. But love has left you lonelier than ever before. And what Jesus would say is those moments are the truest moments of your life. Why? Because all of the splashing on the surface is meant to point you to a deep undertow of the soul. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the only thing that will satisfy your desires. You were made for me. And you will never be satisfied until you taste again of my love. I love the way that Eugene O'Neill put it. The great playwright, probably the greatest playwright of the last generation. He says this, he says, Obsessed with a fairy tale, we spend our lives searching for a magic door in a lost kingdom of peace. Let me read that again. 
Obsessed by a fairy tale, we spend our lives searching for a magic door and a lost kingdom of peace. Friends, what is the magic door that you believe, if this door were just opened, I would enter into a kingdom of peace? What Jesus is telling you is that there is no door. There are no kingdoms of peace on the other side of that door. He says, come to me. I'm the one you've been searching for. It's my kingdom of peace that you were made for, that your soul can never forget. Now here's the reality. Many of you might be here and you hear this now, and you might kind of dismiss all of what I just said and say, that's kind of, you know, it's interesting, it's nice thinking. But what I want to tell you is that you'll spend another 10 years chasing a magic door. And I hope maybe at that point God reminds you of some of this. Or you might spend 20 years or 30 years chasing this magic door. And maybe you're going to need to come to the magic door and have that door open for you. And you walk through and you realize this ain't it. Jesus would say to you, remember what I've said. I am the bread of life. I am what you're hungering for. Or another image that I love along those same lines that we can spend our lives climbing up a ladder only to get to the top and realize it's been resting on the wrong wall this entire time. When you get to the top of whatever ladder you're climbing right now and you realize it's been the wrong wall this entire time, would you remember what Jesus has said? This thirst is insatiable. You can't reason with it. You can't numb it. You can't distract yourself from it. In God's kindness, it's an insatiable thirst that will be heard and can only be satisfied by Jesus. This is what he is claiming. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never hunger again. If you come to me, you will never thirst again. It is an absolutely remarkable claim. So that's the first claim that Jesus makes about himself. And it's a pretty radical one. Uh, but secondly, there's another claim. We'll turn to John chapter 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. So I'm going to read John chapter 8, verses 12 through 18 for you. He says this, <clears throat> When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Have you, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. Let me just stop there. Jesus is making the claim that he is the light of the world. Now here again is a little bit of background. Because that claim alone is a remarkable claim in and of itself. But if you understand the background of where Jesus is in John chapter 8, that claim becomes even more astounding. Because the background is this. Uh, all of Israel has gathered again in Jerusalem to celebrate one of the most important feasts in their holy calendar, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was typically an eight-day feast, typically in the fall, and it was a harvest festival. It was also a festival where Israel intentionally dwelt in temporary structures to remember and reenact the wilderness wandering. So again, that Exodus theme coming through again. Passover, dry land, manna in heaven, tabernacle. 
wandering through the wilderness in these uh, 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 temporary structures. And Israel had, by Jesus' time, had two very important traditions that marked the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, you guys tracking with me? You got it? All right. Two traditions. One thing was this. In the, in the morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a water drawing ceremony. And so there would be a big procession that would leave the temple. They would draw water out of the Pool of Siloam, which is on the south side of Jerusalem. And then there would be a bit long procession back to the temple where they would take the water. And when they're in the pool, they say, we are drawing from the wells of your salvation. And they'd have a long procession back to the temple where they would pour that water over the altar. And it was their kind of way of praying for rain, but it was also a day of desiring the day when we will draw from the pools of salvation and you will pour that salvation out on all people. Now, here's what's interesting. It was in the context of this ceremony that Jesus says, whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. They've drawn the water. They've made this procession. It's reminding everybody about the time when God uh, gave Israel water from the rock in the middle of the desert. And so all this image is, imagery is being drawn up. And Jesus says, I am the living water. If you drink from me, you will never be thirsty again. Here again, nobody's talking about Jesus. But he makes the whole thing about himself. And he's saying, all of this was meant to point to me. And I'm standing right here in your midst. Now in the evening, there was another ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was called the Illumination of the Temple. And so whenever the sun would go down, they had 75-foot candelabras. Now, I'm not very good at measuring distance. 75-feet candelabras is a five-story walk-up. That's how tall these big candles were. And as the sun would go down, they would light these giant candles in front of the temple, and it would illuminate the entire court of the temple. And it was meant to commemorate for Israel the pillar of fire that God would send to guide them through those wilderness wanderings. And so here is Jesus. Now imagine Jesus in this moment. It's this dramatic lighting of these pillars of fire. It's out in front of the temple. All of Israel is gathered. It's supposed to remind Israel about the time when God was a guiding and protecting presence in the midst of the wilderness. And here is this entire scene. And in the midst of this scene, in the middle of the temple courts, what does Jesus say in a loud voice? He stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. And nobody's talking about him. And he says, all of this is about me. Do you hear what Jesus just said? He told the children of Israel, I'm the one who led you through the desert. It was my presence that was a unique guiding and protecting presence of God. What Jesus is saying to that audience is, I am the one who has come to light the way out of your darkness. Now here's the thing about light. Have you ever been lost and alone like in the darkness, like in the woods? I was trying to remember if I've ever been lost and alone in the dark in the woods. I don't think I ever have. Praise God. But have you ever, have you ever been lost alone in the dark, cold woods by yourself? It's one thing for you to have a light for yourself. That's helpful. But if you're lost and alone in the dark woods by yourself in the cold, having a light for yourself, you're the one that's lost. Having a light for yourself doesn't help that much. If you're lost and alone in the cold, dark woods by yourself, what are you looking for? You're looking for light outside of yourself. 
Someone who has come to find you. Someone who has said, come this direction and you will be found. You will no longer be lost. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's not saying you have a light within yourself that if you discover this divine spark, you will find your way through the chaos of the world. Jesus is saying, no, you need a light from outside of you. I've come to you from outside. And I've come to show you I am here to find you. And so he says, my testimony is valid. Why? Because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. What you need is you need light to pierce through the darkness from the outside. A light from outside of yourself. Friend, this morning, what's the darkness that's been gathering on the horizon of your life right now? Where do you find yourself engulfed in darkness? Where are you feeling lost, stumbling, disoriented? What if this morning Jesus is telling you, I am the light that will bring you out of your darkness. I am the guiding, protecting, leading, warming presence of God. And I want to ask you today, what would it take for you to actually trust Him today? To take Jesus at His word. To stop making Jesus after your own image. But to allow Jesus to speak for Himself into your life. When He says, I'm the light of the world, I'm the light of your world. I can guide you out of your darkness. And really quickly, before we move on to the final point, in case you think I picked, handpicked the most obvious I am statements that Jesus makes that point to him being God, let me really, there are seven I am statements in the book of John. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door of salvation. I am the good shepherd, which is a metaphor reserved only for the God of Israel. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I am the true vine. I am the source of all life. Every time Jesus talked about himself, he said things that shocked his audience. Because when he shared who he was, he wasn't a philosopher, he wasn't a poet, he wasn't a mystic, he wasn't a hippie. He was God himself. Come for you and come for me. Third and finally... This will be quicker. We looked at the bread. We looked at the light. Lastly, let's look at the name. And this is where we turn to John chapter 8, uh, verse 848. Uh, and following, it says this, The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by demons, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, for there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so do the prophets. That you say that whoever obeys your word will never see death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so do the prophets. Who do you think you are? And then Jesus, zipping down a little bit, basically 50, he says, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple crowds. Now the, the, the reaction of the crowds, in my mind, is instructive. Because Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. 
And the crowd kind of gets up in arm, but there are people who are like, whoa, whoa, let's calm down, everybody. Let's hear him out. He's probably not saying what you think he's saying. Let's give him a chance. And so they kind of leave him alone. Jesus says, I am the light of the world in front of that temple, in front of those lights. And people are upset, but there again, it's like, well, you know, let's, let's just hear him out. We might be misunderstanding him. It's pro- it's, let's just let him, let's not jump to any conclusions here. But here, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And everybody says he has gone way too far. And the response of the crowd is to pick up stones right there to stone him. And you might say, well, why is that? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Those seem like bigger claims than before Abraham was, I am. But why is this crossing a line? Because what Jesus is doing here, he's not just saying that he existed before Abraham did. So he's not making a grammar mistake. You know, should he have said before Abraham was, I also was? It's not a grammar problem here. Jesus is saying far more than simply saying before Abraham exists that I am. What he's doing is he's taking the name of God and he's claiming the sacred name for himself. In Exodus 3.14, God reveals himself and he says, My name, I am who I am. So go tell Israel, I am is the one who has sent you. Now here's what's fascinating. I'm about to geek out a little bit, so be, be patient with me. That name I am was so sacred for the children of Israel that they never even dared to pronounce the name. So in the Hebrew Bible, the original Hebrew Bible only has consonants in it. There's no vowels in the Hebrew Bible. And so the word that's translated uh, I am has sent you is four consonants. Y-H-W-H. Those are the four consonants. Y-H-W-H. And those are the only consonants that are there. And typically what would happen is just kind of read through, and because you'd have context, you could figure out what those vowels were. Later on, scribes went back in and added vowels to help public readers of Scripture read the actual text. And so what you'll have is you'll have the consonants, and then you'll have vowels inserted above and below to help public readers be able to read the Hebrew text so you could read it basically in church. When those scribes went to the name Y-H-W-H. They didn't dare to guess what those vowels were. Because to mispronounce the sacred name of God would be to take the name of God in vain. That's how holy this name was. So they didn't dare to guess what are the vowels that go between the Y-H-W-H. And so do you know what the Hebrew scribes did? It's fascinating. Again, this is totally geeky. I'm sorry. But let me just wrap this up. What they did was they put in the vowels for the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai, so that the reader, when they're reading through it, would get to Y-H-W-H, and the reader would just pronounce the vowels and say, and so Adonai said, I'm the one who sent you. Adonai. Now the vowels for Adonai, if you take the consonants Y-H-W-H, and you add the vowels for Adonai, do you know what word you get? You get Jehovah. Yehovah. And so when we talk about Jehovah, if you see, hear that term, Jehovah, that's the name of God that represents how holy this name, Y-H-W-H, was as the very name of God. Now maybe you have a little bit of the taste of why Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am 
was so profoundly offensive, unless, of course, it was true. Jesus is saying, I am the ground of all being. I am the source of all life. I am the maker and sustainer of all things. And remember, Jesus was a Jew. He was a radical monotheist. And so it's one thing for a Greek pagan to say, I am one God amongst many. Okay, it's fine. A little weird, but it's fine. Or an Eastern mystic to say, I am an avatar of the supreme. It's fine. Or a Gnostic sage to say, I am showing you the divine spark that's in all of us. That's fine. But for a Jew to say, I am. I am taking for myself the sacred name of God was utterly unthinkable. And here is Jesus making exactly that claim. See, for Jesus, a linchpin of his message. If you want to say, I don't believe in all Jesus is the Messiah stuff, but I really respect him as a teacher, that's fine for you to say that. But then you should actually look at his teachings if you want to be honest about that. And if you look at his teachings, Jesus was claiming again and again and again, I am God incarnate. The linchpin of the teaching of Jesus was his identity. Everything rose and fall with that. Now let me close with this. All this is maybe fine and interesting and provocative. But here to me is what I call the gasp of the gospel. Because it's one thing for Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life. Come and feast on my abundance. It's an entirely different thing for Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life, and I've come to be torn apart, broken into, crushed to dust for you. It's one thing for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. Come to me. Keep up with me. Stay close to me. Warm yourself. It's an entirely different thing for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world, and I've come to be extinguished in your place to be snuffed out in your death. It's one thing for Jesus to come and say, I am the great and eternal I am. Remove your sandals and worship me. It's an entirely different thing for Jesus to say, I am the great and eternal, eternal I am, and I've come to be killable. I've come to lay down my life for you. You see, the gasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that for God to love you and to love me, it not only cost him something, it cost him everything. And when you see the bread of life torn in two on the cross, when you see the light of the world extinguished in your place, when you see the great I am descend into a grave for you, you realize that the gospel creates a gasp in the soul that finally has understood it. Friends, have you begun to realize that? That Jesus did all these things, not for humanity in general, but he did it for you. He laid down his life for you. The death that he died was a death that you deserved. The life that he offers is the only life that satisfies. Would you come to him? Would you feed? Would you gasp with me at the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.
Lord, we bring our hungers to you, our appetites to you. And we ask you, O Lord, that you would help us to taste and see that you are good, to find their satisfaction in you alone. Lord, we bring our darkness to you. And we admit that we've tried to find our own way out of this darkness. But Lord, we need a light from outside of us. Show us the light of Jesus. And Father, ultimately show us that Jesus is the great I Am. That He was extinguished in our place, broken in two, laid down His life. Help us to find in this love the deepest satisfaction for our souls. In this love, that magic door that opens itself up to the kingdom of peace that we have been searching for. Lord, do that for us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.